tremendous day. What a tremendous morning. And uh, I have a tremendous burden for some unknown to me people uh, for this morning. So pray for me that I can cry my way through another thing. Pitiful. Thank you, Lord. God bless you. Be seated, please, in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Je vous salue au nom de Seigneur Jésus-Christ et spécialement les, les sœurs qui sont venues ici de l'Église française. Soyez les bienvenus. Hallelujah. Et aussi pour tous les Africains qui sont représentés ici par n'importe qui. Hallelujah. And I am still married to Pat, by the way. Uh, I, know, I know it looks worse and worse every time I come without her. We have been uh, rather indisposed in, in many ways. Um, recently lost my mom, who was 96, and she lived with us the last almost six years of her life, and it got kind of busy at home. So uh, anyway, we were just had to be there. And... Uh, It was a very, very rare thing that for us to be both be out of the house the last couple of years. One of my brothers was paying for a service, this interesting service called Visiting Angels. They're kind of, uh, you know, they come and spare people and watch over others. And, and so we had two slots in the week where we could go out together out of the house. One of them was on Wednesday when we have a midweek service and we teach a Bible study before we go to church. And the other was Sunday morning. And uh, so, anyway, things have, uh, we had her memorial just recently, so things are changing, and I think we'll be able to move a little bit better together now for a while. Praise God. She loves you. Thanks. I told her this morning on the phone how many people have been asking about her, and she was very, very touched, and she wanted to make, make sure that she, through me, lets you know how much she loves you and, and loves this church. Praise God. I'm going to read in the uh, book of 1 Kings, chapter number 19. Thank you, Pastor Wright, for all of your kindness. Thanks for the invitation. I love this church with all my heart, and um, it'll always be deeply part of us for sure. Um, thanks to the bishop and his wife. Is that Sister Bishop? Oh, no, that's Sister Wright. And, uh, and to all the family, and God bless you, all the leaders. What a wonderful Thursday, Friday, and Saturday we've had already with you. So thanks for, thanks for letting me be here. 1 Kings 19. I'll try not to talk too long here. 1 Kings 19, verse number 1. This, the context of this is one of the most spectacular and miraculous moments in the history of Israel. This is following on the heels of that, and it, was, it happened through a prophet whose name was Elijah. I don't know if you knew this. You probably did, but uh, there's only one Elijah in the Bible. You know, there's a lot of these, and there's a lot of there's a lot of those, a lot of Joshuas, and 
I mean, even Jesus' name, Yeshua, is just a kind of a variation of Yahshua, of Joshua. But there's only one Elijah. His name means, my God is Yahweh, or God is mine, or I belong to Yahweh. It's, that's, that's the import of his name. Um, I'll get to him a little bit more, I think, in the, in the middle of this. But let me, let me just read this. And again, this is on the heels of something that was absolutely spectacular, proving that God was the real God in Israel. And um, unfortunately, at the time, there's a king and queen, especially the queen, who absolutely detests everything about this God that they knew as Yahweh and we know as Jesus today. She was bent on destroying all of the worship of Yahweh and introducing mandatory worship of various gods, the chief of which was one they called Baal. And she hated Elijah. And when he did the miracle that he did in the previous chapter, then um, she was, she was going to just bring this thing to an end as quickly as she could by killing him. Chapter 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel, the king told the queen, all that Elijah had done in the name of the Lord, and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not your life as the life of one of them that he slew, by tomorrow about this time. If you're not dead tomorrow, by this time tomorrow, then let it fall on me, but I'm, I'm after you. I'm going to get you. Verse number 3. And when he saw that, he arose and he went for his life. I want you to remember that. He went for his life and he came to Beersheba, which is a hundred miles away from where they were, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. Elijah left one of the guys that's one of the sons of the prophets that was accompanying him and trying to serve him and help him as the man of God. He left his servant behind. Verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey further into the wilderness, and he came and he sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself, listen to his prayer, he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, it's enough now, O Lord, take away my life. In verse 3, he's running away to save his life. In verse 4, he says, praying, Lord, now take away my life. And his reasoning behind that is, for I'm not better than my father's. I'm no greater than any other prophet that's ever come along. I'm just me. To tell you the truth, I'm a little, um, I'm a little uh, tired of hearing from preachers and teachers I'm a little tired of hearing about how Elijah is wavering and he's scared and skittish and he's a great man on Mount Carmel calling down fire from heaven and then immediately he flips and he's, well, he's just like you and me and this is what we do and you hear Elijah being bad-mouthed all the time and I don't buy that for a moment. So don't try to sell it to me because I won't buy it. Elijah wants to die here because of this. He thinks that life is over. He thinks his ministry is done. And above all, what he does not want to do is die at the hands of Jezebel. Anything else, Lord, is okay. But don't let that witch kill me. I won't have it. I, it'll, be, it'll, be, 
It'll be like a sign to all of Israel that she is superior in her thinking. That she serves a greater God. So just kill me out here. He went a hundred miles away when she sent him the message, I'm going to get to you. He goes a hundred miles. Then he leaves his servants and says, stay here. And he goes another day's journey further into the wilderness. And there alone with God, he simply prays, okay, God, now it's all right. Let me just die here. I mean, you can think what you want to about Elijah. And, you know, and when, when James talks about that he has like passion, the same as we, remember that in chapter 5 of James? He's not saying that Elijah wavered like we waver. All, these, all James is saying is he was just a human being. And look how God used him in such a mighty way. That's all he's saying. So expect to be used by God in a mighty way. Not because you've, uh, you've earned it or you're worthy of it, but simply because God loves you and God has things to do. So as he lay and he slept under the juniper tree, in verse 5, Behold, an angel touched him and said unto him, Get up and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he ate and he drank and he laid him down again. He got some more rest. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, because this journey is too great for thee. What journey? The journey that he's still got to make. There's more. So he arose and he did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat 40 days and 40 nights unto Horeb. This is Mount Sinai. He makes his way all the way to Mount Sinai. That's 200 miles from where he was. So he walked five miles a day for 40 days. You think he's done? I I promise you there was a time in Africa when I thought I was done. I'm serious. I thought I was done. And what God was asking me to do, the door that was opening to go into this next level, this next thing. I mean, I was in my, I don't know, I was in my 50s, I think, which is nothing to me now, you know. But this door opened and, you know... it's time to make this move. And I, and I just, I thought and I contemplated and meditated and, and finally got around to praying about it. Lord, do I have the energy to do this? You know, and the Lord's answering me by, probably called me lunkhead if I remember correctly enough. But of course, lunkhead. I mean, let's get out, rise and eat. I mean, it's a great journey, but here's what you need to do it. So he comes to Mount Sinai. And he came unto a cave, in verse 9, and he lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? Some would say that the Bible, I mean, I'm sure lots of people have said this, that the Bible is a book of answers. And I've found that the Bible is also a book of questions and I find that in living for God that uh, the answer is often right there in the question lately around here I've been uh, hammering in fact just not this visit but other visits preceding this one I've been hammering away on this little maxim of, of mine that says that you know there's a need for real leaders in the church of the living God to be able to articulate the vision they need to be able to, to put it into words. They need to be able to see what God is doing in them, in their lives, and in the life of this congregation. 
to see what God is doing, to understand what he wants to do and where he wants to take you in this journey. And they need to be able to articulate that with their own mouths. They need to think about this sometimes night and day. Just ponder what great things God wants to do in me, through me, in the congregation, and through this congregation. Why not? We're the people of the Most High God. We, are, we, are, we have the same like patience as Elijah. And we just sell ourselves short, don't we? But real leaders should be able to do this. They should, they not should be able to, they should just flat out do this stuff. It only comes by, you know, I taught again, if like not the first time, but, you know, yesterday or the day before, I, I taught on the, on the difference between hearing and understanding and then knowing that when somebody understands, it's when he can articulate this thing. This is who we are. This is what we do. This is where we're going. And this is how we're going to get there by the hand of God. In other words, we're constantly asking ourselves and leaders and people that want to really be in, plugged into what God wants to do in Antioch, the apostolic church, should, should hold each other accountable with a certain kind of a question. Who are we in God? And what are we supposed to be doing according to His will? The warrior handshake and Embrace is an important thing. It really is. Not just physically, but metaphorically as well. We don't want our good friends to fall short of the goal. We want them to be all that they can be. So the Bible is full of these kind of questions posed by the Lord himself over and over and over to certain people. Calling every, each one, he, he's always calling each one of these people to something more, something greater, more depth, more commitment, more change, more growth, more sacrifice, more service, more love. That's what these questions are always about. Now listen, he, always, he knows the answer to the question. God's not asking because he doesn't know. He's asking because we don't know. I find myself doing that when I teach leaders. I mean, I don't do it, I'm, I'm not trying to be God or copy God. I just do it because you can find out some things by asking questions. Imagine that. And not just dumb questions. And not open-ended questions that it's easy to kind of, you know, sneak away from like a snake into the bushes. How you doing? Okay, well, that's nice. See ya. You know, forget that, you know. How you doing? Well, I'm doing great. Well, can you explain that? Uh... Hey, remember that thing you were telling me about last year? Yeah. How did it ever work out? Well, it's okay. Well, can you explain how it worked out? Uh, whoa. I don't know how many pastors, you know, I've asked over the years as a, as a, as a leader in Africa. How many, you know, just tell me how it's going in your place. And they, you know, well, it's just going great. It's, I mean, we're having revival. I mean, and then not just that, but in meetings I've been in where we're supposed to be making big plans and talking about big stuff and reaching the world with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And somebody will say, well, we're really doing great. And then I'm, you know, I'm the guy, excuse me, can you tell me what that means? You're doing great? Man, did I ever get in the hot water over and over. 
Well, here's what we started doing over there. You know, we started organizing these things. I won't even tell you what it was because you might get offended. But we started doing this in our church, and the, and the results have been phenomenal. Excuse me. This was in a committee meeting. I said, excuse me, can you define phenomenal? What do you mean by that? I said, can you put a number on phenomenal? This isn't about numbers, Grossbach. Wait a minute. You said it just had a phenomenal effect. Can you quantify that for me? No, I'm not going to quantify it because it's too hard to do. It's too hard. It causes me to think and ponder and wonder and analyze. It's just easier to say it's phenomenal. And then you're supposed to say, yoo-hoo! But that's not just committees, people. That's not just in leadership meetings. This is in the way that we live. And when God has Elijah in the cave... At Mount Sinai. And he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? He wants to hear Elijah's perspective on what he's doing there. Look at the very first question in the Bible. I mean, the very first one of these questions in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. Adam and Eve have sinned. They're ashamed. They realize all of a sudden for the first time they realize they're naked. I mean naked all of a sudden. The word naked is invented. Because they weren't naked before but they were but they weren't. And the shame of nakedness certainly wasn't there and now it is. And their immediate reaction is cover themselves in some meager way and hide in the bushes. So the very first question Where are you, Adam? From God's own voice. From the same God that walked with them in the cool of the day. Like the breeze touching your skin on a perfect evening. That's the way they fellowship with God. And now God's calling his name. Adam, where are you? He knows exactly where he is. But he wants Adam to answer. He wants Adam to think about why he's hiding. Why are you afraid? Why, why, do you, why do you, on one hand, know that you're so close to God, and yet in this very moment, you feel so horribly alone, Adam? That's what he's asking. You know, those guys, and, those guys that were walking in, in Luke, whatever, Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus after the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, and Jesus looks at them and he he, he joined, they, they kind of join on this road that's going to this village called Emmaus. And all of a sudden, these two guys are, are walking next to the risen Christ. They don't even know who he is. And Jesus looks at them and he says, Why, why are you speaking? I, you know, I heard you as you walked up. Why are you speaking so sadly? What's he asking them? Tell me why, tell me why you're all broken up inside. Tell me, tell me how it didn't work out the way you thought it was supposed to. Tell me this. Tell me. He just wants us to tell him. Elijah, why are you here? Where are you, Adam? The next chapter, Genesis 4 and verse 9. Next question. You know, there's two two sons. They have they have a couple of sons. Now Adam and Eve have two sons, and one of them is doing great. 
you know, just humble and walking with God best he can and doing what his dad tells him. And the other guy is prospering, you know, this guy named Cain, but he just figures out there's a, you know, it doesn't have to be exactly like dad says the sacrifice has to be. And so he offers his own sacrifice. God doesn't find it acceptable. Let's Cain know that it's not acceptable. And Cain just gets a bad spirit, kills his brother. Kills the very thing that makes him look bad. That's what that's all he's doing. Just the human response, right? You know, I'll kill you so that I, you know, I, I, I then I can kind of take over. I don't have to worry about you condemning me just by living a righteous life. So what does God do? Ask him a question. Where's your brother? He saw the whole thing. God saw the whole thing. He saw it coming. Didn't stop it. Let it happen. Boom. Kills him. And just ask Cain, where's your brother? Where's your brother? What's he really asking? He's asking Cain to answer regarding his, his human condition. These feelings. This, this, this bitterness. This, uh, this feeling of unjust treatment by God. He wants him to tell him. I mean, what would God have done if Cain would have simply told him? Where's your brother? I killed him. I killed him. There's never been a murder in the earth up until then. need to ad lib around here I killed him I don't know what God would have done but I know this there's a very good possibility he could have spared him and forgiven him and moved on and Cain could have been one of the greatest preachers there ever was but now he was going to hide it he was going to hide it really all he wanted to know was just tell me Cain just tell me Give me the real answer and then maybe I can rescue you. Maybe I can rescue you if you'll just answer the question. Just answer the question. So, you know, this Elijah thing in, at Mount Sinai. See, see that's, that's the thing. Kind of the way I described it. Elijah's, Elijah's not afraid of dying. He's not afraid of dying. He wouldn't have gone up to the top of Mount Carmel and, and, had done, and did what he did if he, if he was afraid of dying. He had this, this Holy Ghost spirit baptism and anointing and, and the boldness to go and do exactly what God told him to do. And it had such a profound effect. And then there was such a resistance against it you know, from the, from the royal family that he just had this feeling that maybe I'm done. Somebody else is going to pick it up from here. Because here's the thing. God told him to leave. God told him to leave and get out of the sight of Ahab and Jezebel the first time. Go. And that's how he goes and finds the widow at Zarephath and, and lives for a while just off of a miracle there. God told him to go there. Get out of here. He told him it was going to rain. Ahab didn't like it, you know, da-da-da, here we go. 
in a sense, you know, these questions, is this is really, I think, what real preachers are supposed to do most of the time. I think they should be delivering these age-old questions. This, you know, we present the gospel, we, we show somebody in the Bible, and, and we, what we're really asking the, con- the hearer is, is this you? Is this what you've come to? Is there not more? Can the Almighty not change you or deliver you or heal you or save you or guide you or build you or rescue you? And that's what he's asking Elijah in the cave. After all these journeys, after all this stuff up and down, after all this stuff, he simply comes to him and he says, what are you doing here? And there is, in fact, a whole lot more that Elijah is called to do. It's not time to die yet, Elijah. You're not here to die. You're here to get, a little, to get alone with me and to hear my still, small voice, which is exactly what happens. For every one of us, you know, life's circumstances and life's crises and, you know, the valleys of suffering under the shadow of death and loss and sometimes even, sometimes it's great gain and blessing. All these, all these things that happen to us are really just there to ask us and probe us with the questions of who we really are and what we really ought to do and where we really belong. Tree falls on your house. A tree falls on your house. So what do you do? You get up in front of the congregation that you love and who loves you and you tell them that you belong to him. That's what it's all about. We get sick. We suffer. People die around us. Loved ones die. All these things. Or maybe we just get blessed abundantly. All these things are just all probing, just just asking us the real questions. What does this really mean to you? What are you going to do with this? How do you feel about this? And all God wants you to do is simply answer the question. Because the answer is in the question. Look, like Jesus' question to the, to the leper in, 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 in Luke 17. You know, he and his disciples are walking down the road and they come across the ten lepers. Remember that story? You know, and uh, he says, go and show yourselves to the priests. You know, they're calling out, we're unclean. And, you know, they maybe, maybe they even cried, help us, who knows. But go and show yourselves to the priests. They start off. One of them realizes that he's actually been touched and changed and delivered by Jesus. He turns around and comes back. And guess what? In front of the disciples and in front of this one guy comes another one of these questions. There were ten. Weren't there ten cleansed? But where are the nine? And I wonder if that one guy who got made whole, I wonder if he went back and found the nine and told them about the Savior's question told him about the Savior's love and told him about how he felt falling down at the Savior's feet and getting even more than that healing from leprosy. Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb in John chapter 20. Early in the morning, she comes for the wrong reason, but it's also out of love. 
The motivation is love, but it's the wrong reason. She thinks she's going to anoint him with spices and ointments, but what does she find? She finds the stole rolled away, and there's no body in the tomb, and now she goes into a panic. She runs back, and she tells some of the disciples, and Simon, Peter, and John come running, and they look in the tomb, and they they verify that he's nowhere to be found. And then they they go back wherever they were, and Mary's left there alone wondering what's going on, weeping outside the tomb because somebody has stolen the body of the Lord. There's nothing about being, you know, destroy this temple on the third day, I'll raise it up. Nobody remembers that. Nobody remembers that. Nobody remembers that he told them over and over that I'm going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to crucify me on the third day, I'm going to rise. Nobody remembers that. So Mary's at the tomb weeping because he's gone. She sees what she thinks is a gardener. She asks what she thinks is the gardener, what have you done with him? She's standing there weeping in sorrow. What do I do? And all of a sudden, it's not the gardener, it's the voice of her Savior. And she asks, he asks her a question. Mary, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? What does he want to hear from her? What does he, how does he want her to answer just honestly, just openly, just with no nothing hidden at all. Just pour it out, Mary. Just tell him, I thought you were gone. I thought it was over. I thought they, they had put an end to this. I, I didn't know what to do. And what can I do? And then all of a sudden, it can all be okay. And then what do you find? She's holding, it's, it's so, it's, The emotion and the moment is so intense. It's as if, it doesn't say it exactly, but it's as if she grabs a hold of his feet and holds him there. Just so glad to see him. And Jesus has to say, don't touch me now because I need to go. It doesn't mean that, you know, if you're going to get electrocuted because you touch my glorified body or my unglorified body. He simply means, don't hold me here because there's a lot more to be done. Let this process continue. Don't stop here. Don't stop here. Don't stop weeping at the tomb. Don't stop when you don't know what Jesus is. Just tell him what's going on. And then, you know, how about the the very, very well-known and I think for some preachers the well-worn-out story of the woman with the issue of blood. I've heard all kinds of versions of this over the years. Mine just seems to get simpler and simpler. Because really, really it's a story that, that asks the question, how do you get to Jesus when you can't get to Jesus? It's just a simple and a desperate faith and a struggle with her anonymity that, 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 caught, that puts her in this, in this conundrum, puts her in this predicament. What do I do? I'm, you know, according to the book of Leviticus, I'm unclean. I, I, I'm I'm un, I'm as unclean as those lepers. I can't. I mean, any anybody that comes around me and that touches me, anybody that that you know handles something that has you know something that I wore that might have blood on it, I, it makes them unclean, and they can't do anything until the evening. There, every, every, I'm unclean. And here's Jesus, and he's you know he's surrounded by this throng, and how do I get there? And, how do I get there without making everybody in the crowd unclean? And what if they find out that I've got an issue of blood? And what about somebody that knows me? And I've had this for a long time. And somebody's going to call me out. And, they're going to, and the ridicule will be even more deep and profound than ever before. 
What do I do about this? How can I get to Him when I can't get to Him? You know, Jesus, like all the other men, you know, those days He wore that, you know, that thing they called the talit. You know, they, all the men were supposed to wear these things. Like, and then on the, on the corners of that thing were these, were these uh, tassels. And there were a lot of people, there's a lot of, you know, beliefs and traditional ways, of, you know, I've read about. And, and I think there was even some superstitions attached to the, maybe to the power and the authority of those, of those tassels on the corners of the talit, this outer garment thing. Like a prayer shawl, they call it now, I think. But anyway. And some people felt like if you could get to that, and it's, you know, there's, there's at least three more examples where people are getting to the, this, these tassels that Jesus had on his outer garment. I mean, it's not just this woman. She's pretty much the first one, but there are other people. I mean, there's a, there's a whole multitude of people that, that, that get him in the next chapter. And all they want to do is touch those things on his on his robe or his prayer shawl or his talit. If we can just touch those, and the Bible says that they were healed. So it's like they they certainly believed that there was power, and those tassels stood for the authority that would operate in, in, in anointed men of God. So that's what she was trying to get to. If I can just touch, what'd she say? If I can just touch the hem. If I can just touch the tassel that comes off the corner of his garment, then maybe I can be healed. That's the answer. So she braves it. She braves the crowd. She goes and she touches it. And sure enough, she feels something. She feels something. But it wasn't something magical. It wasn't some kind of black magic or some kind of good luck thing. It wasn't one of those at all. In fact, what she was experiencing was reaching out to somebody that wanted to love her for all of eternity. And this was going to be her moment. And this is my burden for this congregation and who's in it this morning. Jesus wants to make this your moment. A new reality. This woman needed to know that she didn't know, but that she could know. She had to see that the power wasn't in the tassel. She had to see that the healing was not just in what he wore. She had to see not just the touch of healing and deliverance from her immediate problem, but that she was being touched and meeting a Savior that could keep her forever and ever. It's amazing, it's amazingly wonderful, and it's horrifyingly terrible to consider how easy it is for everybody here this morning, for anybody here this morning, to reach out and touch Him and be touched by Him. It's amazingly easy, and it's horrifyingly, it's terrifying to me Because so many people don't do that littlest of things. I was driving up here this morning, dangerously, dangerously, because I was praying about this very thing as I was driving. And I 
you know, I don't usually get all, you know, emotional and goofy behind the wheel, I hope. And I'm, I'm, I got to talking about somebody that, who could simply let the Lord touch them the way he wants to and would simply allow it for just a fraction of a moment. And I just was, I was overwhelmed with this thought. And I, you know, and I, you know, I, I, it's like for a second or two, I was just out of it and realized I was driving on US 50. And this is not a time to go into some big speaking in tongues thing. Jesus meant this as her moment. Here's what she had to see. She had to see that it wasn't just blood that was flowing out of her every day. But it was just that every day she, was, she didn't understand the way, the truth, or the life. And whatever it takes for us to open our hearts and set aside our shame and begin to see and know him for who he is, then it's, it's even better than, than what he does. Just knowing him for who he is. Jesus wants us, just like her, to know that we can touch him. That we must touch him. Now listen to this. And Jesus wants us to know that we are touching him. Close your eyes. Jesus wants you to know that we can touch him. That we must touch him. And that we are touching him right now. Just keep your eyes closed. A man that's considered one of the old-time commentators on the Bible, is a, and I love his writings, is a man named Alexander McLaren. And he wrote this. He said that longing, longing is the prophecy of fulfillment when it's longing according to the will of God. Okay, you can look. Longing is the prophecy of fulfillment when it's longing according to the will of God. When when a human heart longs for something that is according to the will of God, that is the prophecy of fulfillment. And we don't let that desire come out. We don't let that longing be visible. We hide that. We suppress it. You know, it's as if everybody, everywhere, every single day in their own way and in their own desperation are actually touching him. And they don't realize that he's answering your touch. Let me wrap this up and read you a passage that some of us know very, very, very well, at least the beginning of this part. I'm reading in Hebrews chapter number 4. Why don't you all stand? The writer of Hebrews wrote this. There remains therefore a rest to the people of God. 
For he that has entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. And here we go. For the word of God is quick, it's alive, and it's powerful. The word of God is alive, and it's powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. In other words, it divides between life and death. And of the joints and the marrows. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of every human heart, of every soul on this earth. Now listen, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things, all things are naked and opened to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Jesus sees everything. He knows where you hide. He knows what's wrong. When, when that woman touched the hem of his garment and virtue flowed out of his body, he knew it. He knew who it was. He was in exactly that place, exactly that time, exactly that day, knowing that exactly that woman was going to have her moment with him. But the question is, who touched me? The disciples were astonished at what a dumb question that was. Everybody seemed to be touching him. But he wanted wanted one woman to answer. Jesus always singles people out. Always. That's the way he works. That's what he's doing here this morning. Who touched me? And I don't mean that you had to crawl on your hands and knees down to this altar begging and crying and pleading God to do something. Listen, He knows, He knows the cry of your heart. And when you long, when you long for something according to His will, for example, I, I really I really, I really wish, silently, I mean, this is all silent, of course. You would never do this out loud. But I really would like to, I really would like to know Jesus the way that some of my friends and some of the people here know Him. But you would never utter that. But it's a longing of your heart. That longing is the prophecy of fulfillment when it's done according to the will of God. Listen to this. Listen to this. Neither is there any creature that's manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then, seeing then that we have a great high priest, we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let's hold fast our profession. Because he's not a high priest. He's not the high kind of high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. In other words, forget the double negative there. He is a high priest that is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. 
The word touch there is not the same thing as who touched me back in Mark. What happened, what this, what this touch is, it's this, it's this, it's sympateo. It is exactly the Greek word from which we get the, the English word sympathize. He is a high priest that sympathizes with deep compassion about our feelings of weakness and despair. I want want you to see the picture of what this means. The reality is this. The burden here this morning is this. The way we sang so deeply earlier in the service is because of this. Jesus is sympathetic and has compassion over our feelings of weakness and despair and loss and sorrow and grief. He's touched. He's always touched by that. He's not somewhere on a throne far away. He is always touched by that. And there's somebody here this morning. And the longings of your heart are according to the will of God. And understand that Jesus is sympathetic to your feelings of your weakness. And He's asking you the question. Who am I touching right now? Elijah, what are you doing here? There's more. Visitor, why are you staying there? There's more. There's more. It's not a physical touch that we're looking for. You don't need to touch Jesus physically today. But you need to let the longings of your soul pour out. Just give Him a second. Just give Him a chance. Let that little spark of faith and desire turn into a flame. It can happen instantaneously. Saint of God, you can see more and do more and go more and be more. What are you doing here, Elijah? There's more to do. You're not done. There's more. There's more to be done. Oh God, help us, Jesus. Please. Please. That was her moment. Let me read you something in Mark about that poor woman. She needed something. She touched him and the the fountain of her blood was dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him and about and in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And the disciples said, well, there's a multitude thronging. And why do you say who touched me? And he looked around about to see her. That He looked around about to see her. He knew exactly what it was. So first he said, who touched me? Nobody answered. So he wheels around and he looks at her. And the woman was fearing and trembling and knowing what was done in her. She came. She came and fell down before him and told him all the truth.
If you've never felt that, I... Oh, God in heaven. I remember the exact moment when he, when he singled me out. And I remember that exact moment when I went and I fell at his feet and I told him all the truth. I was longing the whole time. I never even would confess it. I, I would never have told anybody. But one night, in one moment, it was a moment for me. Listen. She fell down and she told him all the truth. And then he said, then, then, see then, when she answered the question. Then he said, daughter, he said to her, the one he came to meet that day. Daughter, your faith, listen, listen to this. Your faith has made you whole. Now go in peace. You got to hear this. Help me, Jesus. Go in peace. Go in peace. And behold, behold of your plagues. That's what it says in the King James. That's not what it says in the Greek. What he really said was go in peace. And be made whole from your, and the word is mastix. And it's the word for a whip or a scourge. (laughs) It's the very word that was used for the scourge that they whipped Jesus with on his arrest. And here all of her life. Up until that moment, that day, ever since she had been sick for years and years, every day it was like being whipped. She was beaten down and bloodied every single day. Who touched me? Nothing. Who touched me? Now she's found out. She throws herself at his feet, tells him the whole truth, and then he says, Get up in peace and be healed from all the whipping and all the scourging. You know why he could say that? You know why he can say that about you? If you're sitting here today, if this is your first time here, I'm telling you this. All of your sinful troubles, all of the things you've wrecked in life, everything you've tried to do that's come undone, it can all be delivered all all of that scourging can be delivered from your life because he took the scourging on your behalf the woman be delivered from your whips and your scourges and your wounds because I took them on myself Jesus name Jesus name oh God Somebody needs to come and pray. Saint and visitor, somebody needs to come and pray. Somebody needs to tell him all the truth. Tell him all the truth. Why are you hiding? Where's your brother? Where are the nine? There's dozens of these questions. 
asked the man at the pool of Bethesda, will you be made whole? Will you be healed? He's not asking because he doesn't know. Elijah, why are you here? What are you doing here? Saint of God, why are you just kind of at a plateau and not growing anymore? Why are you here? Well, I'm done. No, you're not. You're not done. Well, let me just die. No, you're not dead. No, there's more, Elijah. There's more. You're going to go and you're going to anoint your successor, Elisha, and he's going to be a, a mighty man of God as you pass off the sea. There's more. There's more to do. There's more to grow. There's more to explore. Hallelujah, Jesus. The first question God ever asked me when I got to Africa was, whoever said this would be easy? The first trial I had to go through, the first difficult thing, He asked me, whoever said this would be easy? There's more. There's more. more. Don't quit, Elijah. Don't quit. Don't quit. It's not your time to quit. I got you out here in the wilderness to ask you one question. What are you doing here? Why did I get you alone? Why do you feel broken? Mary, why are you weeping? What troubles you the most? What troubles you the most, Mary? You men, why why are you talking so sadly on this way home? And they told him. They told him. Hallelujah, Jesus. God, help us, Lord. Help help every brother and sister, Lord. See, you're you're touching Jesus and some of us don't even know that we're touching Jesus. Our longings touch Jesus. Our longings touch Him. And He wants to answer you. But just tell Him. Tell Him the whole truth. Tell Him the whole truth. Fall at His feet. Tell him the whole truth. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus, more than anything, my God. 
I love you more than anything. Open your heart. Open your heart. In Jesus' name.